So I'm going to be coming at the catechism a little bit sideways today. I, I think it's um, always dangerous to suggest that any particular Lord's Day or any particular question and answer is maybe a little bit more important than some of the others, but I think we probably have that sense. And this is one that is probably among the most important in all of the catechism. Why is he called Jesus, meaning Savior? But the fact that it's among the most important of all the Lord's Days in the Heidelberg Catechism means it's one that has been preached a lot. And frankly, it's one that gets preached probably just about every year at Christmas time in Reformed churches. We always have that. Why is he called Jesus, meaning Savior? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the thing is, when we look at the Catechism and we see that, essential nature of the fact that Jesus is the only savior. There is no salvation to be found in any other name. There is no other name under heaven. As Peter said in the text that I just read, given among men by which we must be saved. I think one important question, and this is what I'm going to focus on this afternoon is, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And I think we can find something of that in the text that I just read from the book of Acts. So like I said, I'm coming at the catechism a little bit obliquely here, but I hope that um, we, as we understand that Jesus truly is the only savior, the only hope of salvation for people in this world, that that will spark us to go out and to live the text that we're going to be considering together. So think for a minute about some of the movies that you may have seen. If you've never seen this kind of movie, then you are blessed. Don't go out and find one. Don't watch one. They're not helpful in any way. But there's this whole genre of movies that portray people who find themselves in terrible situations. And you've seen them. And they're approaching the closed door. And they're reaching for the handle. And just the music that's playing in the background should tip them off. Don't open the door. You know, if you're swimming in the ocean and you start hearing time to get out and go for ice cream, like just use your head. But a while back there was a film that was particularly memorable to me where the cast of characters decided, get this, to go on vacation to the abandoned site of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor meltdown. What could possibly go wrong? And in the course of that story, they did all of those things that were, were sitting there watching this and just, no, don't go down the stairs. Okay, you went down the stairs. Don't open the door. Don't walk into the dark tunnel. And after a while, you lose all sympathy for these people because they appear to be stupid beyond all reason. Now, my mother, who has been with the Lord for some time now, could have solved all of their problems. Once, as a child, some friends of mine and I, we walked over to a park that was a little farther from my home than we typically strayed. But while we were there, we ran into some bullies and we got ourselves beat up for our troubles. So I returned home with torn clothes and some bruises and scrapes and my mom made a quick assessment. You're not bleeding to death. You don't need to go to the hospital and then gave me her wisdom on the subject. Just don't go to that park anymore. You know, it was kind of like the old 
joke, right? Doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, then, don't do that. Problem solved, right? But I guess Peter wasn't really familiar with the old joke, and he certainly never knew my mother. If you read through the book of Acts, what you discover is that Peter and the other apostles, for that matter, have this tendency to go back to the places where they have found themselves in hot water, to the places where they have experienced trouble. They're inevitably going up to that door and turning the handle and walking through. The last words in the Gospel of According to Luke, tell us that after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples worshipped him, and they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Now, of course, the temple was more or less home base for the very people who had arrested and tried and crucified Jesus. And you may recall that at this particular time in history, many of those same people were actually paying good money to bribe the soldiers who had been assigned to guard Jesus' tomb so that they would say that they fell asleep on the job and that the body of Jesus had been stolen by said disciples in an attempt to validate this resurrection story. Now that argument lost at least a little traction on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came upon him and Peter stood up and preached that so very seeker-sensitive gospel message from Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, I feel like he pointed, this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. I read that, and right away, I think somebody must have forgotten to mention to Peter that you catch more flies with honey, or maybe Peter just wasn't really all that interested in catching flies. In any case, we are told that the number of people who heard that message and turned to the Lord that day was around 3,000. Now, chapter 3 of Acts puts Peter and John back at the scene of the crime, so to speak, healing a 40-year-old man that had been lame from birth, and once again preaching the gospel of grace. Peter said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. I do not think this man had ever read how to win friends and influence people. Um, But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And then Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. As I noted before, Some people may wonder, why did Peter just keep antagonizing these people? In today's evangelical culture, we would say, Peter, can't you just sort of tailor this message to be a little more seeker-sensitive, a little more user-friendly? Can't you just preach by grace through faith? The thing is, that's what he was doing. And I know that because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when Peter preached that day, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. 
So a very happy ending for the church. Not so much for Peter and John. Acts chapter 4 then, verses 1 through 3. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And you can see how that would annoy them. It would annoy someone who is paying good money to cover up the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that the apostles are back there yet again proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, as we saw, they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they spent the night in jail. And then on the next day, Peter, again filled with the Holy Spirit, took another crack at preaching the message of the gospel to the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together with Annas, the high priest, and all who were of the high priestly family. I suppose Peter figured this had worked twice before, so why not let them have it again? So he says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This was the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Neither is there salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now, when they perceived the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. But there wasn't really a lot that they could say in answer to what Peter was preaching or to the miracle that had been done because the evidence of God's power was standing next to them in the person of that man who had been healed after 40 years of being paralyzed. So, you know, because they can see this amazing miracle that has been done in the name of Jesus, what do you do? Well, they called them, they called the apostles, and they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. A miracle has been done in the name of Jesus? Well, we don't want that do we? So you guys, just stop it. And then in verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. And this is where I really want to put our focus this afternoon. Peter and John were preaching in the temple when they were arrested, imprisoned, and threatened with worse than that if they continued to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, they were doing this in the temple at Jerusalem, and this is the very domain of the elders and rulers and scribes, together with the high priest and all who were of the high priestly family. Solomon's portico, which is where Acts tells us they typically met was not the sanctuary, it was not the courtyard where the sacrifices were offered, but what Peter and John were doing was akin to going down to whatever hospital or clinic is responsible for the majority of abortions in Lethbridge and standing outside preaching the gospel holding a sign that says abortion is murder. You're going to antagonize people by doing that sort of thing. 
done it before, and trust me on this one, you will antagonize people. And Peter and John are standing in Solomon's portico in the temple at Jerusalem, this place which from time immemorial had been the seat of worship for the Jewish people, the same people who had crucified Jesus, the same people who had paid to cover up the story of the resurrection, and they are standing there proclaiming in Jesus not only his resurrection, but the resurrection from the dead for all who would believe in his name. This was an in-your-face proclamation of a message that was pretty much guaranteed to be offensive to people who were pretty much guaranteed to hear it at the location where it was being preached. It's no wonder then that they were arrested and threatened. Now watch what happens, verses 23 and 24. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they, their companions, heard all that had been said and done, they said, and imagine, I can't do it, just imagine the voice of Larry the Cucumber here. Oh boy, (laughs) that must have been really scary. Maybe you guys should stay away from there from now on. There has to be some place else where we can meet away from the eyes of the priests and elders. Maybe we could just dial down the message a bit. Maybe we could be a little less in your face about this gospel stuff. Let's just talk about what a great guy Jesus was. And you know, if you would just leave off that whom you crucified bit, you know, Peter keeps coming back to it, whom you crucified, just leave that off. And maybe we can learn to live and let live. Now, of course, I'm grossly misquoting scripture, and I apologize for that. When Peter and John came back and told their companions what had happened and what the chief priests and the rulers had said and done, what really happened was the church lifted up their voices and prayed, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And the address kind of telegraphs where they're going, doesn't it? Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And again, that kind of says it all, but they push on. Now, Lord, look on their threats. And what would we expect? What would we possibly say ourselves? Now, Lord, look on their threats and pay them back. Pay them back in kind for everything they did to Jesus and for everything they have threatened to do to us. Nope. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants Safety? No. Protection? No. Peace and quiet? No. Grant to your servants a long, happy, and prosperous life at the end of which we die in our sleep and go straight to glory? No. Grant a less controversial version of your message, which will tickle the ears of everyone who hears? No. 
Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants with all boldness that we may continue to do the very thing that has brought these threats upon us. Grant us boldness to continue to speak your word, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and cuts to the heart, commanding all people everywhere to repent because you have fixed a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom you have appointed. This same Jesus, whom we crucified, but whom you have made both Lord and Christ. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Now, later in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested again and put in jail, but when God miraculously delivers them, they go straight back to the temple. And they do this time and time and time again. When I go to the temple and I preach the gospel, they arrest me and throw me in jail. Well, then don't go to the temple. Or do. If you feel like the message that we have been called to proclaim, the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. We can shy away from it. We can water it down. We can do other things to try to avoid the inevitable confrontations that come when we proclaim the word with boldness. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is called Savior because he is the Savior, because he is the only Savior, because there is no salvation to be found anywhere else or in anyone else. That was true for us. If we're sitting here tonight and we have trusted in him alone for our salvation, it was only through him that we have obtained that salvation. And I would be willing to say that there's not a person here that doesn't have some family member, some loved one, some friend, who still needs to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we need boldness because repent and believe is not a message that the world wants to hear. Grant us boldness that we may speak your word. Just like Peter and John did. They went back to the temple, they preached again, and they were arrested again. And when they were brought before the council, the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter and John were not stupid. They knew how this could end. Peter had been told by Jesus himself exactly how it would end for him, just not when. But they stood there before the high priest and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We ought to obey God 
rather than men. Maybe we remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before a king who held the power of life and death over them, saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, even if you decide to pitch us in there, if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We ought to obey God rather than man. Remember Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms standing alone before the princes of the Roman Church, not concerned with the fact that through the Holy Roman Emperor they held the power of life and death over him as well. Having been called to recant, he said, here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Amen. And it occurs to me that he tacked on that God help me, amen part as a prayer because he knew it wouldn't be easy to stand up and proclaim in Christ alone the message of salvation by grace through faith. A couple of years ago, I started following the story of a church in China. Um, in December of 2019, they had gathered for worship. They were not an underground church, they were just an unregistered church. And they had gathered for worship, and as they came together, they were surrounded by police, they were surrounded by whatever instruments of the state had been sent to arrest many of them. And about 100, including most of their leadership, were taken away that Sunday as they gathered to worship the Lord. And you would think that maybe, okay, it's time to become an underground church. They decided to go to a nearby park and in a very public place, of course in Chinese, not in English, the leader who was left said, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And those Chinese Christians who had just seen upwards of a hundred of their members taken away to who knows where and for how knows long, who knows how long, their, their pastor is still in prison and has been stripped of all of his rights of citizenship, so we can only imagine what that means in a Chinese prison camp. Those Christians stood there in the park in a public place and they raised their voices and said that we are not our own but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. They had been forbidden to speak. They had been forbidden to preach. They had been forbidden to proselytize. They had been forbidden to distribute Christian literature to their friends and family and the people that they knew needed the message of the gospel. And yet they said, if Jesus is the only Savior, if he is the only means of salvation for anyone in this world, then we cannot be silent. We must speak. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. When the rulers and elders and priests of the people heard Peter's reply in Acts chapter 5, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
One of their own talked them out of it. Still, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And I suppose my mom might have said, if they beat you up when you go down to the temple, just stop going down to the temple. If it hurts when you do this, then don't do this. But Peter and John didn't see it that way. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for shame for his name. And I wonder what we will do. I wonder what we would do. We believe that Jesus is the only Savior. Nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We believe in Christ just as they did. We believe that in the gospel we have a message that the world needs to hear just as they did. We believe in salvation by grace through faith just as they did. But do we understand that grace is not about God carrying us to the skies on flowery beds of ease, as one hymn writer put it, but rather about the spirit of the living God empowering his people to stand before the gates of hell and before the devil himself wrapped in the armor of God and holding forth the word of truth, proclaiming that Jesus is the only savior proclaiming the gospel, which is God's power for salvation to all who believe, and then rejoicing if we should be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We are Reformed Christians, so we talk a lot about the gospel, and we talk a lot about grace. But the message that we find in the book of Acts is the gospel, and it was grace and grace alone that enabled them to proclaim salvation through the name of Jesus to people who hated them for their efforts. Within about two or three decades of the day that we have been reading about in Acts chapter four and five, most of the people who were involved in this story would be dead. And many of them would die as martyrs, some sooner rather than later. All of them would suffer dishonor, to say the very least, for the sake of the name. It's something I think we need to think about, something we need to pray about in a culture that, again, is growing increasingly hostile to the message that we proclaim. As the culture becomes increasingly hostile to the idea that Jesus is the only Savior, do we back off and say, well, that's what we think, but, you know, whatever? Or do we stand? with the apostles and the saints and the martyrs and proclaim the truth of the gospel of salvation. Let me conclude with a quote from a French missionary, Francois Coyard. Sometime during his service in Africa, he wrote in a letter to the mission board, we must remember that it was not by merely interceding for the world in glory that Jesus saved it. Now we know that Jesus does intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. He's not denying that. But it was not by merely interceding for the world in glory that Jesus saved it. He gave himself. Our prayers for the evangelization of the world are but a bitter irony 
so long as we give only that which costs us nothing and draw back before the sacrifice of ourselves. As the apostles said, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Here we stand. We can do no other. God help us. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you have brought the knowledge of Jesus Christ, your son, to us and that you have worked in our hearts faith and repentance and made us your own. We know that that word of the gospel is your power for salvation. It's the means by which your Holy Spirit draws people to you. And so, Lord, we pray that having come to you through faith in Christ by the word of the gospel, we may now go forth and proclaim that word of the gospel to those who need to hear. Lord, you know those who are yours, but we don't. So grant us boldness to speak the word to anyone and everyone, whether they want to hear or whether they want to silence us, grant us boldness to proclaim that there is no other name, no name other than Jesus under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We pray in that holy name. Amen. <clears throat>